1: Bienvenidos, bitches. Vuiti, binafi. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. <laughs> there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news
0: is racist, allegedly. (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth. And I just happen to be white.
1: Oh, oh, my God. (laughs) have we done this before? It's not her fault. I'm sorry. I'm like, looking. I'm like, what? What is she waiting for? It is not her fault. She she is one of the good ones.
0: We're not journalists, investigators or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at (laughs) 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is
1: fruitloopspod.com we use fruitloopspod for all our social media the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a fruitloopspod.com yeah you can also
0: support us by supporting our sponsors so are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Jerome Dennis, an American convicted serial killer who, while on parole for a prior rape conviction, allegedly kidnapped and murdered five women and girls in two cities in Essex County, New Jersey, between 1991 and 1992. This episode was suggested to us by Milton and researched by Minnie. Well, hip-hop air horns for Milton and Minnie. Yeah. Yeah. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. So we tried to have a watch party this weekend with our patrons. And we did. It, it didn't it didn't work. So Aww, <laughs> I'm a little know. bummed out about that, that it it's didn't work right. out as planned. Yeah. Um, but we have some other plans in the works. We do. We do. It's it's exciting. Yeah, um, it's a learn. It was a learning opportunity. We learned stuff. So it
1: wasn't yes. like for not. That's and, true. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm bummed too, but we get to give it another shot. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited about that, and I bet the fruities will be too.
0: Yeah, I think so too. But I also had some sad news. Uh Nishal Nichols died this past week. So I wanted to say uh-huh. uh, Yeah, rest in power. To uh, rest in uh-huh. 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 power yeah.
1: queen. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was yeah. And then um that basketball player who and I, I hate sports. <laughs> that basketball <laughs> player died, but he was like a civil rights icon. Oh wow. Um and Oh my God! Bill Russell, uh, died, oh, and he used he played. Much. I well. I know him as the basketball old black guy and he, he he's always on, he's always around. Okay. Um, And he uh, played when, you know, the shorts were high and it was black and white, but apparently he revolutionized the game anyway. Wow. um, He was an, um, an activist kind of in the same way that Muhammad Ali was and John, uh, Jim, John Brown, Jim Brown. Um, At this Around the same time And he used to play For the Celtics We've talked about Boston And it's really Racist history (laughs) Especially in sports And even though He played in Boston I think he even Coached there He never said I play for Boston Or I coach for Boston He was like I'm a Celtic Because he had to deal With some intense racism While he played there Wow And it was really Challenging for him So Rest in peace To him as well Yeah, Yeah Oh man Man Yeah Oh Well, maybe we can get into this mailbag and cheer up a little bit. Let's get into some listener
0: letters. Okay. Sounds like a good idea. Okay. Hello, angels. Thank you. Mm, What's in that bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thanks to Manola Granola for your five-star review.
1: Also, thanks for your name.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Manola (laughs) Granola. And we got an email from Lindsay who said she was sad that we had no mail in our bag last week. So... (laughs) <laughs> Thought she would say hello. And, oh, hello, yes, Lindsay. Hello. And uh, she also said, also, what the fuck is happening down there in America? <laughs> <laughs> Did I involuntarily step into a time machine? What's Ooh, next? Lord. I can't show oh. my ankles in public. I need a man <laughs> to sign for my passport. No thanks. <laughs> Should be gray. And yes, girl, indeed. A Shit girl. Yes.
1: Hip hop air horns, <laughs> Lindsay. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Also, May the Lord open. Yes. Now, uh, we have we have no Patreons this week, but if you sign up, uh, Patreons, just so you know, you get a tune, you get some merch, um, and thanks to some updates and improvements all around, you get time to kick it with Beth, me, and Minnie, and yeah. thank you for being a friend. <laughs> Your heart is true. You're a pal and a Patreon. (laughs) Anyway, we can't wait to see you there. Yeah. Um, So we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back.
0: And we are back. Beth, remind us, who are we talking about today? Jerome Dennis, a Black American man who, while on parole for a prior rape conviction, was convicted of killing five women and girls in New Jersey. Oh my God!
1: Okay, well now we're gonna get You've into been dying some. Even trying to use that. I know. You? I have. I have. I. It's just been sitting there. You know, the, the don't push. You. The don't push sign yeah. is right in front of it, and I just had to knock it had down. Had to do it anyway. Yeah. Let's get into some stats, shall we? All right. So Jerome Dennis had five murder victims. They were all female and all black. So we just want to say rest in power, queens, and prayers up to all those left in um, the wake of this uh, tragic case um, and the communities and uh, and such. So uh, the victims are Jamila Jones, who was 16, Elizabeth Klenner, 30, Stephanie Alston, 30, Robin Carter, 41, and one unidentified Jane Doe. Now, additional charges included the attempted murder of two East Orange women. One was Khadija Harris, who was 23, and Zelda Bailey, who was 26. The crimes took place from 1991 to 1992 in Essex County, New Jersey. And just for some crime stats, I saw 91, 92, and my brain went, crime bill, crime bill, crime bill. (laughs) And I thought it was was important in the context of the 90s to bring this up because the news, the politicians, everybody, Had everybody scared. Yeah. uh, Everybody, even black people, were like, yes, the crime bill is the solution. But it turns out to not have been. And here's what we were working with in terms of the 90s. It was the height of the war on drugs. 94 crime bill was on its way, by the way, authored by Joe Byron. Um, And uh, in New Jersey in particular, here's some crime stats. And this report I read uh, indicated that crime occurred every one minute and 20 seconds. Wow, A violent crime at the time uh, occurred every 10 minutes and 50 seconds. So that's for violent crime. And a crime is subjective. By the way, Martin Luther King went to jail just for protesting peacefully. Right. Um, so it it depends on who's the boss um, and who's making the laws determining what crime is. But we can all agree murder, rape, all those things. And that's what most of these are when it, we're talking about 1992, this report in New Jersey about violent crime. Um, it also included robbery and aggravated assault. Um, nonviolent crime was classified as burglary, larceny, theft and motor vehicle theft. At the time, there were 397 murders in 1992, 2,399 rapes and 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 attempted rapes, and this is in New Um, Jersey. This is in New Jersey. Okay. Um, they broke it down by county, and I was—it uh, was just really hard for Too me to true yeah. f- for Essex County specifically because yeah. it was—it was a PDF. It wasn't black and white. <laughs> I just—I couldn't control F anyway. So um, it, this is the—the the picture uh, in New Jersey. Okay. Um, there were forty-eight point six thousand violent crimes and three hundred forty-five thousand non-violent crimes. Now that's compared to nineteen. 19- 1992 when crime overall decreased in the state of New Jersey. So mm. all those numbers were really high that I just gave off. Right. But in 1992, they were less. Huh. Um, and uh, fun fact, um, just because uh, some joy before we get into some yeah. terrible stuff. Yeah. Uh, some famous people from Essex County. Did you know Dionne Warwick oh. is from there? Uh, Whitney Houston hmm. is from Essex County. Gloria Gaynor. I will survive is from there. <laughs> Ice-T, the rapper and of Law and Order fame. Another reason to do this. (laughs) Also, Lauren Hill and Queen Latifah are from Essex County, New Jersey. So now we're going to get into the
0: setting. Take us there, Beth. Our story today focuses on East Orange slash Newark in Essex County, New Jersey, during the years 1991 to 1992. East Orange was formerly part of Newark, New Jersey, and borders it just to the west. The bodies of of the women whom our subject, Jerome Dennis, was accused of killing were found in desolate, poorly lit areas under train trestles or along highway embankments within walking distance of an East Orange police station. The assault victims who survived were also attacked in the same area. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the land that is now referred to as New Jersey
1: was originally home of Native Americans, with the Lenin Lenape being dominant at the time that Europeans began to Arrive is a soft word. <laughs> invade um, the area. Invade the area. Invade, <laughs> infect, infest the area. Um, Shishibi is the Lenape name for land that is now New Jersey. The Dutch were the first Europeans to arrive, followed by the English, who began to more aggressively colonize the area.
0: On February 15th, 1804, New Jersey became the last northern state to abolish new slavery and enacted legislation that slowly faced out existing slavery. New Jersey voters eventually ratified the constitutional amendments banning slavery and granting rights to the United States Black population.
1: You know, I heard something interesting on a podcast the other day that um, white people who witnessed slavery being abolished before their eyes saw freed Black people walking around as um, loose property. Oh, geez. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. So... In the 1800s, Newark's industrial boom was made possible by the first wave of immigrants moving to the city. Specifically, the Irish came to the area in the 1820s to work on the construction of the Morris Canal, which at its peak carried about 900,000 tons of freight through a system of 23 water-powered inclined planes and 34 locks that climbed 914 feet above sea level across New Jersey. Wow.
0: Yeah. German immigrants began arriving in the 1840s and 50s as refugees of the failed revolution of 1848. By 1865, a third of Newark's population was of German descent, and between 1840 and 1870, Newark's population increased from about 17,000 to about 105,000. Black
1: people began moving to Newark in the late 1800s, and then again during the World War I factory boom. War-related industry prompted another boom in the Black community between 1940 and 1960, which tripled in size. At that point, 34% of Newark population, as many white people subsequently moved to the suburbs, aka white flight. By 1970, Black people composed 54% of the city's population.
0: All of the attacks we're discussing in today's episode were perpetrated on Black women. One was a teenage girl, and they occurred not far from the Columbus Homes in Newark, New Jersey, a huge public housing complex located between High Street and 8th Avenue next to Route 280 West in Newark, which closely named neighbors, East Orange. We've discussed the history of New Jersey before in previous episodes of Fruit Loops, but I don't think we've talked about the Columbus Homes before.
1: No, not specifically. Right. So let's get into it. The right. Columbus the Columbus Homes, originally called the Christopher Columbus
0: <sniffs>
1: Homes, were <laughs> infamous for the horrendous living conditions there. That is not appropriate, I think, for Christopher Columbus. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the guy who raped brown women for fun and wrote about it in his journal. Anyway, um, the complex built in 1956 as part of a redevelopment plan was composed of eight. 13-story tall slabs with 200 apartments each. In its inception, it provided close proximity to schools, Broad Street Station, Branch Brook Park, and the newly constructed Sacred Heart Church.
0: Though considered modern urban at the time, it was also intended to be affordable, so the architecture of the apartments followed an orthodox public housing formula. Cost-saving approaches were reflected in the bare brick facade and a lack of decorative finishes on the interior. Hmm. Public housing began in the U.S. in
1: 1933 with Roosevelt and the New Deal as an attempt to address the housing shortage. During the Depression, there were many unemployed middle and working class white families who were losing their homes. And this was the constituency that the federal government was most interested in. Of course. Of course. So the federal government began a program of building public housing for white people only in cities across the country. Some projects were built for black people as well, but they were always separate projects never integrated and never equal.
0: Right, right. The white projects eventually had large numbers of vacancies created primarily by a federal housing administration program to suburbanize America. The FHA subsidized the mass production of subdivisions with the requirement that none of the homes be sold to Black people. They also subsidized white families to move into these white-only suburbs.
1: And this stuff is
0: like in writing. Yes. Black and white. Yes.
1: (laughs) Um, At the same time, the FHA refused to insure. mortgages in and near Black neighborhoods, a policy known as redlining. The term redlining comes from the kind of mapping that was done during this time, as maps were color-coded by the Homeowners Loan Corp. and used by the FHA and the VA. These color codes were designed to indicate where it was safe to insure
0: mortgages. Anywhere that Black people lived or even lived nearby were colored red to indicate to appraisers that these neighborhoods were too risky to insure mortgages. The underwriting manual of the FHA actually spelled it out, saying, quote, Incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities, unquote. The oh, manual boy. also suggested that highways were good for separating Black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods. How helpful.
1: Horrifying. <laughs> Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Um, And just as an exercise, I recommend anybody listening type in your zip code plus sign redlining, and you will be able to find a map of your own community, either a historic map or sometimes they have current ones um, that show where redlining is in your area. And you might even live in a redlined area. Community. Right. Um, and it just, just to, th- I mean, consider what stores are in your neighborhood. What are the schools like in your neighborhood? All of this is by design. Um, so, Anyway, uh, so as the white housing projects began emptying out, the black projects had long waiting lists. Eventually, it became so conspicuous that the public housing authorities in the federal government opened up the white designated projects to black people. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Finally. (laughs) Um, At the same time, industry was leaving the cities, leaving black people poorer in those areas. The projects then became projects for poor people, not for working class people. They became subsidized houses when they hadn't been subsidized before.
0: And because they were poorly managed and population dense, these styles of high-rise public housing that popped up in various cities across the U.S. in the 1950s later gained a reputation of being filled with nothing but drug dealers, drug users, and gang violence, causing anyone who could do anything about it to turn a blind eye, for the most part, toward any crime or landlord neglect slash abuse that did happen there, exacerbating Mm. the problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and not only turning a blind eye, but look at the economy that had to be created because of lack of opportunity. Drug dealers, drug users, gang violence. Gangs gangs don't just happen for fun. We've talked about that before. So um, the lack of equity created... Um, sort of uh, a breeding ground for um, For these kinds of crime. Yeah, for these kinds of crime. Yeah, exactly. So as tends to happen, the general public not living in the area developed a bias against the people who lived in these high rises, writing them off as human garbage, unworthy of any assistance that they might need to help their situation, deserving of anything bad that happens to them and destined to produce nothing but another generation of quote unquote criminals.
0: George Langston Cook, a Black man who grew up in the Columbus homes, spent 30 years there with his family and wrote a book about his experiences. He wants to remind folks that there were plenty of good families living there, human beings, just like everyone else. Mm. Cook later left New Jersey and became a teacher in Phoenix, Arizona, and will provide a link to his book, The War Zone, A Story of Christopher Columbus Homes, in the show notes.
1: Oh, fantastic. I hope there's an audio version. Yeah. Otherwise... (laughs) (laughs) just tell me about it anyway uh cook does acknowledge that there were a lot of negatives to living there but there were also lots of good community-minded people living there shopkeepers homemakers, working-class community leaders, and a variety of ethnic influences resulting in a wonderful cultural blending. These good people later became the victims of poor management of the complexes and the area deteriorated during the 1970s.
0: The people living in the Columbus homes did not have the power to affect positive change in their living environment, and pleas for help once ignored became easier and easier to ignore, as lack of attention allowed crime to increase and the reputation of the high-rises to drop further, allowing the public to write them off as a lost cause.
1: That's just... Devastating. TV, Sad. yeah. Uh, and put that together with it. human beings. Human beings can't be yeah. lost causes. They deteriorated further and further as a result. And in 1982, Newark began to abandon the Columbus homes altogether, leaving some of the high rises completely empty and vulnerable to vandalism, while a few were still inhabited. This created even worse living conditions for those who remained there, as their homes were now in close proximity to the large abandoned structures. A textbook case of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if there ever was one.
0: Yeah. A federal lawsuit cast a harsh spotlight on the Housing Authority, which for decades was so rife with patronage, corruption, and mismanagement that federal officials called it one of the country's worst. Mm. Graffiti-scrawled elevators often broke down, repairs were rarely made, and drug dealing was commonplace. Yet somehow, good families still managed to make it their home for decades and did the best they could with what they had. That's
1: that's the story of humanity,
0: yeah. right? We yeah. do the best we can with with
1: what we got. The Columbus Homes Complex was finally demolished in 1994 after decades of neglect. On the day of the Columbus Homes Complex demolishment, the mayor at the time, Sharp James, said, quote, this is the end of an American dream that failed, unquote. 3,800 pounds of explosives were detonated in order to demolish the
0: 38-year-old project. Wow. Hmm. Fun fact. Sharp James was later convicted of fraud and served prison time Uh-oh. for conspiring to sell city-owned properties to a a former companion at a fraction of their value. Whoa! She paid a total of forty-six thousand for the properties and quickly resold them for a profit of more than six hundred thousand. Oh my! Without God. making any renovations, as was required under the city contract. You, sir, are the American dream that failed.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. uh I... That sounds so crooked and disgusting. Awful, yeah. Uh, the demolition that morning was one of the largest in history of American public housing. It capped a seven-year legal battle in which housing advocacy groups demanded that the Newark Housing Authority build a new home for everyone it raised. Housing authorities decided to replace the towers with townhouses. The Winona lipman Gardens, administered by the Newark Housing Authority.
0: The demolition was described in a New York Times article as having an oddly festive air with hundreds of residents gathering to watch and dozens of the city, county, state, and federal officials turning out to express their joy and relief that the towers were finally being turned into rubble. Some of the residents applauded after the explosion, but not everyone.
1: I imagine displaced a number of people. Yeah. Annie Twitty, the last president of the Columbus Tenants Association, said, quote, "'I felt very sad when I saw them going down. "'I lived there, called it home for 20 years.'" It shouldn't be something they should glorify. They still have a shortage of housing in Newark, unquote. Come on, y'all. Yeah. Um, what are we doing? <laughs> uh, so now we're going to get into Jerome Dennis's early life. What do you got, Beth?
0: Jerome Dennis was born on December 14th, 1966 in Newark, New Jersey. He was the seventh of nine children who were raised mm. primarily by their mother in the Columbus homes. He would have been experiencing childhood and growing into adolescence during the decline of the Columbus homes.
1: Living in the Columbus homes uh, all his life, Jerome had had run-ins with the law at a young age um, because this community, as we described the history, was, as you can imagine, also very heavily
0: policed. However, he was not
1: charged with anything until 1981. He did, however, drop out of school in the seventh grade.
0: In the fall of 1981, Jerome, now 13, had allegedly committed three rapes in Newark and was arrested with his 18-year-old brother, William, on November 6, 1981, the night of the third attack. The prosecutor who handled the case, Richard Banas, said in a 1992 interview with the New York Times that he remembered the arrest as bizarre. Hmm.
1: Well, after the attack, the two young people went to a phone booth in Military Park in downtown Newark and called the Essex County Police. Prosecutor Bannis said, quote, they told the police what they were doing on the tape recorded police phone system. They were bragging, unquote. Bannis said they described the attack in obscene detail and asserted that two Newark police officers were also involved.
0: The phone call lasted almost an hour, by which time the police had traced the call and dispatched officers to apprehend the brothers. Jerome was charged as an adult in the trial, during which the two brothers were tried together. He was subsequently convicted in 1983, then sentenced to 30 years in prison. He was 13. Wow. With a requirement to serve a minimum of 10 years. He was first incarcerated at the age of 14, served 10 years, and was released at the age of 24 Jesus fucking chopsticks raised in prison <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah no uh children should never be put away for for that that long, long um, yeah somebody 13 is just and, barely adult, into adult Jesus yeah. Christ that's insane yeah um also um are there victims in this case in the rape case um, or, I wondered if it yeah, was a, there a, were, one of but those I don't cases think, that never happened
0: okay it, I don't think uh they named them yeah okay
1: because sometimes there are people who go to jail um or are convicted of crimes that never happened. never
0: happened yeah um yeah anyway, there's just not enough not information about about this and uh, who knows maybe they made mm-hmm. the phone call there were no victims who knows
1: yeah um it's it's uh fucked up all around i th- yeah. i think um yeah. and what about the brother's assertion that two newark police officers were also involved Were the brothers in a way trying to get help? were the officers, the true ringleaders of the crimes. Um, it just seems like a really odd thing to say that police officers involved. Uh, yeah. I, don't, uh, that, I think that's Minnie saying that. I don't yeah, think Yeah, so. yeah. You don't think uh, so. Okay. I don't think so as a black person. I am no stranger to police being corrupt, lying no, about no, stuff. No, no. What,
0: what she's saying is that it seems like a really odd thing to say that police officers were also involved if they weren't involved.
1: Hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, still don't agree. Anyway, I wonder <laughs> if any officers were investigated at all. I wonder too, yeah. or, or if it was just written off as the ramblings of more "quote unquote" human garbage. Yeah,
0: good thought, Minnie. Yeah. By the time he was released, Jerome had spent almost half his life in prison. Instead of going to school, playing sports and learning to live independently, he was learning about baking and cooking at the Garden State Reception and Youth Correctional Center in Yardville, New Jersey. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to Stop the Killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be
1: part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends, trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. So now we're going to get into the timeline. So Jerome Dennis was paroled from the state prison at Yardville on November 19th, 1991, after having served the mandatory minimum of 10 years, of a 30-year sentence for rape, criminal restraint, and armed robbery. His brother William was still in prison, having been sentenced to serve a minimum of 30 years before he would be eligible for parole. He was a child too, right? Yeah, he was
0: was 18 when he was arrested. So he was quite a bit older than Jerome. Jerome was described as a model inmate and parolee during the 10 years he spent in prison. And in the five months he was on parole. He attended vocational cooking classes and a Bible study group behind bars.
1: As a special condition of his parole, he was ordered to participate in the parole agency's Intensive Supervision and Surveillance Program, which assigned him to a parole officer who maintained a relatively small caseload
0: in order to devote extra time to each case. In the Intensive Supervision Program, because the officer's caseload is limited, they are able to visit with the client once a week or pay extra visits to their workplace or home. A parole officer in this special program usually helps find jobs and housing and acts almost as a surrogate family member in budgeting or other personal decisions.
1: Dennis's parole officer in East Orange had no more than 25 cases, compared with as many as 80 or 90 for other workers. Before Dennis was released, a parole counselor at the prison theoretically would have begun the process of finding him a job, housing, and financial aid to prepare him for his return home.
0: Dennis was also required to continue the psychological treatment or counseling that he had begun in prison, and he apparently complied. He moved in with family at a multi-story Victorian home in East Orange, New Jersey, within walking distance from the by-then-mostly-abandoned Columbus homes in Newark, where he'd spent his youth.
1: After his release, Dennis was employed for several months at the Pleasantdale Bakery, a kosher bakery on Pleasant Valley Way in West Orange. Employees said Dennis, who worked as a porter, was quiet and diligent. They said they knew he had been in prison, He also worked part-time at a cleaning job in an East Orange Burger King.
0: On December 12, 1991, Zelda Bailey, age 26, was abducted. She was raped and then attacked with a knife, but she survived the attack. She must have reported it to the police as they were able to later contact her for identification of her attacker later. But the incident doesn't seem to have been covered by news media at the time.
1: On December 16th, 1991, the body of Robin Carter, age 41, was discovered on 14 Sheffield Drive in Newark, the location of the abandoned Columbus homes. It was not clear how she came to be in the area or how long she had been dead, but she had been fatally beaten. This incident also does not seem to have been covered by the news media at the time.
0: So these are all black women. So Mm -hmm. not surprising that it wasn't covered. Yeah. On February 22nd, 1992, Khadijah Harris, age 23, was attacked and assaulted with a knife in East Orange. She survived the attack and reported it. Though, again, no news coverage of the incident seems to exist from the time that it occurred. A couple
1: months later, Jamila Jones, a 4-foot-10, 16-year-old high school girl, was walking home with a friend. It was close to 1 a.m. on Thursday, April 9, 1992, and they were walking back from another friend's house where they had been socializing. The two separated, where each made the last of the walk to their different homes alone. Jamila's friend later called to make sure that she had made it home safely, but she hadn't. She was never seen alive again.
0: On Friday, April tenth, nineteen 1992, at 2.49 a.m. on Main Street at North Maple Island, Avenue, an East Orange foot patrolman discovered the body of Jamila along with a kitchen knife that had clearly been used to stab her. The blade of the large knife was broken and bloody. Mm. Jamila had been stabbed several times and then had been pushed or had fallen off of a pedestrian footbridge six blocks from her home. Jamila died from her stab wounds. The knife was broken is a horrific thought. Yeah just um stab 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 what what, what yeah. it
1: required is right. horrifying to think about right Jamila's aunt Rhonda Khan described her as quote such a sweet girl and so popular why would someone want to hurt her she was a good person and so little didn't weigh more than 100 pounds she had lots of friends and we always knew where
0: she was unquote yeah she was she was little 4 foot 10 yeah yeah, yeah.
1: and beautiful I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad in whatever article um found that there was a,
0: a picture of of a picture
1: of her, yeah, yeah, she was sweet looking girl.
0: The East Orange police soon began to search the area for evidence that morning. Then, at 6.14 a.m., after widening their search, they found the partially decomposed body of 5'4", Elizabeth Klenner, age 30. She was partially clothed, and her jacket, shoe, and pocketbook were nearby. <laughs> and I'm uh, <laughs> sorry, I laughed. This little, oh, note okay. from, little note from Minnie, who said, Hi, Wendy, I know how much you love the term pocketbook. <laughs> <laughs> Yes,
1: uh, black, um, in the black community, pocket pocketbook is a word for your vajayjay. <laughs> um, and so sometimes just seeing the word makes me smile, but this is a sad case. It is. <laughs> um, so Elizabeth was the mother of two children sharing an East Orange home with her mother, Teresa James, who reported Elizabeth missing back on February 17th, 1992. One account said February 19th, um, but about two months prior. Uh, Teresa described her daughter as... As a hard worker who had held a series of jobs as a food shop manager, cashier, even forklift operator. On February 17th, one account said February 15th, um,
0: Elizabeth telephoned her mother to say she was on her way home, but she never arrived. Elizabeth's husband had died two years prior, and she had lost her job as a waitress two weeks before she disappeared. She'd gone to a local McDonald's to apply for a job as a manager, but she never returned home from the interview. The medical exam Later determined that she had died from a blow to the head.
1: Later on the same day, both Jamila and Elizabeth were found. At around 4 p.m., the body of Stephanie Alston, another one, Jesus. Another yeah, uh, was found under thick plant growth. Uh, she had also been stabbed and bludgeoned to death. Stephanie had lived on Arlington Avenue in East Orange and had been missing since February twenty-first, nineteen ninety-two. So whoever this is doing this stuff is busy, busy, busy. Yeah, very busy.
0: After finding Stephanie, local law enforcement agencies formed a task force to investigate the deaths. The task force consisted of officers from the Essex County Prosecutor's Office, the East Orange Police Department, the New Jersey State Police, the New Jersey Transit Police, and the Essex County Sheriff's Department.
1: Uh, That might seem like a good,
0: like so much effort, right? but I also think about
1: especially in the early 90s, the lack of communication between these different departments. Yeah,
0: so I was thinking um, if they're forming a task force with all of these departments involved, maybe there was more communication, but I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the optimist, and you think that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the following afternoon, April eleventh, nineteen ninety-two, yet another body was found decomposing beneath foliage near Orton Parkway and Route two eighty West. The victim has not been identified, but it was determined that she had been beaten and stabbed to death. By Monday, April thirteenth, nineteen ninety-two, the FBI also joined the task force. Wow. That, that yeah. was quick. That was quick. All yeah. it took was one,
0: two, three, four, five. Uh seven <laughs> seven black women had to be killed. Yeah. Thanks, FBI. Yeah. The authorities said that Jamila, Stephanie, and the unidentified woman had all been sexually assaulted. The bodies were all found within 100 yards of each other. I believe that is in Spjort's terms the length of a football field. Ah, oh,
1: yes, I've heard of this football <laughs> field thing. Um that's the green one, Right, yes ones... yes oh yeah, yeah 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 Yeah. okay i can picture it now <laughs> uh we we did our best to find out more information about all of the victims but there was very little available yeah um the attacks on khadijah and zelda the survivors don't seem to have been reported in the news at the time that they happened um there was no attention on them from the media until the body of jamila was found
0: it took a 16 year old girl being murdered for attention to finally be focused on the other older victims mm. i think there were at least two isms at play here, one being race and the other being age. All of Mm. the victims were Black, but only one was that young. Not that Jamila didn't deserve the attention. She did. The others also deserve the attention, though, too.
1: Absolutely. And also, I've got some other isms for you. Sexism. Yeah. uh, America hates women. Um, Classism. America mm-hmm. also hates poor people. Poor people, yeah. um, and that's all I can think of right now. But okay. that's plenty. Plenty to of me isms. To, yeah. That's plenty of isms. This is not good. No. Um. So regarding Elizabeth Klenner, known to friends and family as Titi, her aunt Alice Williams said. Quote, it took our family to go out and search. We searched with our friends for two months in that same area, looking in abandoned buildings, distributing flyers all over the state. It wasn't until Friday, April 10th, that the police made this public, unquote.
0: She further said that Titi, quote, was a very loving child devoted to her children and loyal to her family. Why couldn't the police have done more, unquote? Titi's cousin, Austin James, said, quote, she was too sweet, too nice to anybody. That was her personality. she talked to anybody. We told her not to, but she liked people, unquote. (sighs) That's a bummer. Yeah. Um,
1: Austin said the family was angry at the police. Oh, yeah. Whom he accused of not aggressively pursuing her disappearance and that TT's children ages seven and 12 now had only their grandmother to care for them as their father had passed away. That is awful. That is awful. Um, and, uh, yeah, not aggressively pursuing the disappearance. Uh, it's worth all the anger in the world at, at mm-hmm. the law enforcement who – um, say they're here to serve and protect and yeah. solve crimes and stuff. But obviously at this time, it doesn't seem that that was the case. Right.
0: But now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth! At 5.20 in the morning on Sunday, April 12th, 1992, Jerome Dennis was arrested at his home in East Orange. He was charged on April 13th, 1992 with four murders and three rapes in East Orange and Newark, two days after the task force had formed. On April 16th, ninety two he was charged with one more murder and rape
1: While the authorities refused to say at the time how they came to focus on Dennis and would not share any details of the investigation nor would they speculate on any possible motives they asserted that two of the women who survived the attacks had identified him most of the bodies of the murder victims were found within a block of each other in desolate or dimly lit areas within walking distance of Dennis's home they said he had also confessed to the killings
0: <laughs> Nege. <laughs> people living in the community had doubts as to whether or not the right person had been arrested for these crimes. There was some suspicion in the community that the police had just gone for whichever black man had a record that best matched the crimes and picked him up. And I think that has some weight because they wouldn't talk about the evidence. Right. So what evidence was there?
1: Yeah. And that's a common theme. I mean, you see it. uh, One of my favorite shows is Wrongful Conviction. And I think of uh, a recent interview where the black man who who was wrongfully convicted, the police picked him up and they said, oh, it doesn't matter. N word. You probably did something, oh, even though you may not have done this one. So yeah. they picked him up and he went away. He got locked up for decades. Jesus. He didn't do nothing. Wow. Um. So, yeah, the locals expressed that they didn't feel they could relax. That they still needed to be vigilant because they didn't feel that the correct suspect was behind bars and that a confession was not enough to prove he really was the predator. They felt it was possible that the killer was still out there, free to commit more crimes. And for those of y'all who don't think that false confessions are a real thing, it. Is. It, and is real. it is. And it is not a surprise that the black community was like, who cares? He confessed. We know what y'all do yeah. back
0: there yep. at the police office without telling us what the evidence is. How do mm-hmm. we know? How do we know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Local resident Lorraine Jackson said, quote, I hope they got the right guy. A lot of people get arrested for things they don't do, unquote. Mm. At a city council meeting, some women said they remained fearful and were skeptical about the arrest because it was done so quickly. Another local resident, Renee Boone, said, quote, All the media was after them. I think what they needed was a suspect fast, unquote.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. w- imagine what that does to public confidence when there is um, somebody on the loose who's committing these horrible crimes right. and law enforcement and city officials are uh, obviously pressure n- to do something. Yes. They just don't always do the right, right thing. thing. Yeah. Prosecutors tried to reassure the public that Dennis was indeed the correct suspect. Acting Essex County Prosecutor Peter J. Francis said at the time, quote, I can assure you, he was not plucked out of thin air, mm. unquote. An mm, official said, yeah, well then, where's the hours? Us. <laughs> uh, an, an official said that a knife blade that was found near one of the bodies was linked to Dennis.
0: At Dennis's arraignment on April 14, 1992, an assistant Essex County prosecutor, Norman Mentz, said that Dennis had signed a confession to each of the crimes and had been identified during a photo lineup by Khadijah Harris and Zelda Bailey, whom he was also accused of attacking.
1: Khadija said that Dennis had wielded a knife when he attacked her and had taken her to the area where the bodies had been found. Menz also said that Zelda identified the knife found near the body of Jamila as belonging to Dennis. Hmm. Um, How how would she know that? How would she know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A spokesman for the Essex County Prosecutor's Office, Ray Weiss, or Weiss, said the investigation included testing on
0: samples of Dennis's hair, blood, and saliva. Mario Paparosi, a supervising parole officer for the New Jersey Bureau of Parole said that Dennis's parole officer was surprised and shocked when his client was charged with five murders and four rapes since December.
1: According to Robert Eggles, executive director of the state parole board, quote, there are cases where someone is paroled and convicted and you go back and with hindsight, you can see it was a problem waiting to happen. But the file is 100 percent. Nothing's missing. It's hard to see how this alleged behavior will end up being explained, unquote.
0: Another East Orange, Man was charged on April 18th, 1992, with the murder of a woman whose body was found in an abandoned building in the area. The body was originally linked to the investigation that led to Dennis's arrest.
1: Now, do you have reasonable doubt? Yes, Yes. I do. Yes. Now, Curtis Lee Stone Jr., 28, was charged with killing 27-year-old Maria Ferguson, whose body was found in August 1991 in an abandoned building on Washington Street. Maria had been strangled. Dennis was eliminated as a suspect in that murder, as he had still been in prison when Maria was murdered.
0: During the police search of the area, after finding Jamila, another body, that of Dennis Gaskins, who had been 30 at the time she died, was found in the same basement where Maria had been found back in August. Her cause of death was undetermined. Initially, Denise's murder was linked with Dennis but he was later eliminated as a suspect for her murder as well.
1: Don't, wouldn't you think the case deserves some revisiting, reopening, yes, yes. re-examining? Um, a third charge of attempted murder against Dennis was filed for an April 3rd, 1992 attack on a 32-year-old Newark woman who was stabbed in the neck. The woman was treated at a hospital and released. This charge was later dropped. Um, so now we're going to get into the trial. What the what, Beth?
0: During his arraignment in Newark, New Jersey on April 14th, 1992, before Judge Joseph A. Falcone, Dennis described in one report as stocky, And in another, as a slim man, (laughs) about five feet, seven inches tall, stood on one side of the courtroom with his manacled hands shielding his face. He never took them away from his face during the arraignment, and he spoke only when the judge asked him for his social security number.
1: During recess, he was assigned a public defender, Joseph Krakora, who conferred with him. Dennis did not return to the courtroom that day, but Krakora indicated that Dennis had agreed to give blood, saliva, and hair samples. Dennis pleaded not guilty to the crimes. Bail was set at $2 million pending a grand jury indictment.
0: On February 26, 1993, one year and three months after he had been released from prison for his earlier conviction, Dennis, instead of standing trial, agreed to plead guilty to four counts of murder, one manslaughter count, and two counts of aggravated assault. In return for the guilty pleas, prosecutors said they would drop 30 lesser charges against him.
1: Um. Yeah, I, this... Um. This plea is so interesting after saying he was innocent all this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Those psychiatric examinations convinced Judge Falcone that Dennis was capable of understanding his guilty plea. He had been hospitalized twice for attempting suicide while he was in prison awaiting trial. One of his public defenders asserted that Dennis was suffering from, quote unquote, memory dysfunction and couldn't recall committing the crimes.
0: When Judge Falcone asked Dennis if he remembered confessing to one of the murders, he answered, quote, I don't know. I guess so. A recess was ordered at this point, and Dennis spoke privately with his defenders. When he was brought back in, he answered yes to all of the judges' questions about the crimes.
1: On March 12th, 1993, at the age of 26, Dennis was sentenced to life in prison for the crimes. Uh, It was determined that he could be eligible for parole in 60 years from the date of his conviction, when he was going to be 86 years old. Had he stood trial instead of pleading guilty, there was the possibility that
0: he would have received the death penalty. So a lot of times they'll plead out so they don't get the death penalty. Don't have to go through that. Yeah. Yeah. One of his public defenders, Albert Capin, said Dennis was suffering from schizophrenia and urged the judge to order psychiatric treatment for Dennis in prison.
1: Jamila's mother said at the sentencing, quote, The person took my daughter on my birthday. We had to bury my daughter on my grandmother's birthday. These are days that we use to celebrate and we cannot because there is nothing but pain,
0: unquote. So now we're going to get into where are they now? you got, Beth? Jerome Dennis is currently incarcerated at New Jersey State Prison, formerly known as Trenton State Prison, the oldest prison in New Jersey and one of Mm. the oldest correctional facilities in the United States. It's Mm. the state's only completely maximum security institution housing the most difficult and or dangerous male offenders in the inmate population. And JSP also housed New Jersey's death row for men and the execution chamber until the state abolished capital punishment in 2007.
1: One of his fellow inmates there is Vernon Collins, Baltimore narcotics hitman and the inspiration for the character Weebe Bryce of The Wire. Also incarcerated at this prison in the past was Ruben Cotta, uh, a boxer who was wrongfully convicted of murder. That's the hurricane, y'all. He was released in 1985 and went on to become an activist for the way. Wrong- convicted. Another
0: notable inmate is Jesse Timendekis, who was formerly on death row for the rape and murder of seven-year-old Megan Nicole Konka. This crime inspired the passing of Megan's Law, which requires communities to be notified when a convicted sex offender moves into the area.
1: The murder of Megan Kanka occurred in Hamilton Township, New Jersey, in 1994. Seven year old Megan was raped and murdered by her neighbor, Jesse Timendakis, after he lured her into his house. Timendakis had previously been convicted of child molestation. Timendakis was convicted of Megan's murder in 1997.
0: In a 1997 article, disc- Discussing this case, there was a reference to Jamila Jones. The 16-year-old girl Jerome Dennis was convicted of raping and murdering, and he had also been on parole at the time. There was no notification to the community when he was released after having been previously convicted of rape, and Jamila's murder happened in 1992, well before Megan's murder.
1: Interesting. Interesting. When asked her opinion on why it took Megan's rape and murder to finally bring about change, Damila's mother, Doreen Gathaga, said, quote, I hate to bring race into it. I really do. But we do live in a black community. And it's like what happens here just happens. And nothing is heard of until it happens to a white community. And then something changes. Yeah. That's the only way change comes about, unquote. I couldn't have said
0: it better myself. That is so frustrating. Yeah. 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 Jerome's brother, William, was eventually released from prison and is currently registered as a sex offender living in New Jersey.
1: Prior to the 2007 appeal of the death penalty, the death row for men and execution chamber was in the Capital Sentence Unit, CSU, at the New Jersey State Prison. This unit was first established in 1907. The first death by electrocution occurred on December 11th, 1907.
0: The lethal injection chamber at the prison was actually never used, and the death penalty was repealed in December of 2007. Therefore, the final execution to take place at the prison was a January 22nd, 1963 electrocution. The former lethal injection room now serves as an office. Hmm. Interesting.
1: American Vigilante. Now. Um, so now we're going to get into what we think made uh, Jerome Dennis snap. And our takeaways on the case. So, Minnie's got a take here.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to read Minnie's take. Here we go. Okay. Did he snap? Lacking a trial, I don't know if we'll ever be privy to the evidence that would have been presented at trial. So, I'm actually hesitating to be convinced that Jerome Dennis actually did these crimes. Mm. We've talked about eyewitness testimony and confessions before and how unreliable they are. In my mind, a signed confession is garbage. Anyone will confess to anything, true or not, given the right circumstances circumstances. circumstances. Mm -hmm. The two women who identified him as the man who attacked them picked him out of a photo lineup from what I was able to tell. And I think those are also very unreliable. They may have been certain that this was the guy. And I believe that they believe it. But the brain does strange things to the memory. Yeah, And they may have just recognized his face because he lived in the area and worked at the local bakery. Mm-hmm. One of the women also identified the knife as his. But by all accounts, it was described as a large kitchen knife, not some kind of special unique knife. So I could easily see one kitchen knife being mistaken for another. Right. And I don't know how she, uh, this is me, <laughs> I don't know how hmm. they would know that. Uh, it was his knife. Anyway. I don't either. Yeah. I'm scratching my head. Yeah. Investigators did take blood, saliva, and hair samples from Dennis, but again, this was in 1992, and DNA analysis wasn't that advanced at the time. Not knowing what they even did with the samples, how they analyzed them, I have a. Uh, Lots of questions. (laughs) Anyway, I'd like to say I have confidence that the police in this investigation did their due diligence and made sure they convicted the right man. But the number of times that an innocent person has been convicted and locked away on the basis of a confession, eyewitness testimony, and a few bits of evidence, then later proved not to have done it by an advancement of technology or new information, I am not convinced mm. i think it's entirely possible that he chose to plead guilty because if he didn't he ran the risk of going to trial being convicted and getting the death penalty and uh, i 100 percent agree
1: yeah me too minnie yeah
0: yeah And uh, I am also not convinced that he's guilty. Right? But if we pretend, if we assume that he is guilty, um, I think we can look to his youth as being a major factor, Uh, maybe being influenced by his older brother. I think for sure that earlier crime or whatever happened when he was 13 years old, his brother was 18. So he was definitely being influenced. By his yeah, brother. Yeah. And then his his environment was not the best. Mm-hmm. He was the seventh of nine children. That's a lot of kids. And yeah. he dropped out of school in the seventh grade. Uh, so he didn't have a lot of options. So there's yeah. that. And then uh, second factor being uh, he was brought up in prison.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. right. Raised in prison, not not yeah. the most um, wholesome no. uh, neighborhood.
0: Not good. Uh,
1: I'm sorry, <laughs> environment, not neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, I I agree with all those things. I'm not convinced that he um did the murders. I'm also uh, because I didn't research the rape part. Um, that feels really um callous to say that. But I, there are um sometimes people who go to jail for crimes that never happened. Um and this is my own ignorance and my own fault. But what if those rapes didn't even happen? Yeah. Um, so I'm not I'm not convinced. The whole story feels like it has a lot of holes in it. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a lot we this... don't
0: they're not telling us. Yeah.
1: And, and intentionally when there should be the utmost transparency if you're going to put people away for the rest of their life. You know what I mean? Um, And he seemed to me like the perfect boogeyman. I wouldn't even say scapegoat. Like they wanted people to be afraid of this person and then do the perp walk, lock him up and be able to do their press conference so that the community could feel safe again. Um, And I know that Jerome Dennis was not a saint and a lot of that had to do with his environment and his lack of opportunity um, and resources. And support Um, But he was an easy boogeyman And uh, you know When you're making a recipe And like you don't have whole milk I'm just going to use 2% (laughs) And mind you, it's probably going to look And taste like shit But it gets the job done, right? (laughs) I put milk in it. uh, Who cares what happens after that? And so the community needed a boogeyman. Who cares if it's not the right ingredient? Who cares if everything's not right? Law enforcement needed a perp. Um, And then I also thought about um, the 94 crime bill, which was on the horizon. And everybody at the time in the early 90s was afraid about crime.
0: And they wanted to be strong on crime. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But they they did it wrong. Yeah, they weren't doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And whether they there was enough evidence to get a legitimate solid conviction or not what matters to municipalities is closed cases and convictions yeah that's kind of what the wire was about like all these right. just,
0: exactly. the more rest
1: the more stats the better, the better you're you're doing at yeah. your job
0: yeah
1: um and the evidence just wasn't as solid as it should be i think to put somebody away for
0: life um, and the crimes continued. Yeah, they got that other guy, um, arrested that other guy. Maybe that other guy did all the crimes. We don't know. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, we, we don't know. But then the, then law enforcement doesn't have to keep working at it anymore. Right, they can right. move on to the next, you know, thing. Yeah, they don't care. Um, they
0: don't care. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, that's what this case was giving me. But I think that that kind of law enforcement and um, crime solving should bother all of us. Yes. Because in the end, it keeps us all unsafe. Yeah. Um, Because the real perp could be out there. Yeah. Um, His confession was disturbing to me because it was the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) And we know we just know so much more about law enforcement coercing, beating, torturing, particularly the young black men into confessing yeah. crimes he didn't and commit. And he was
0: 13 when he first went to jail. When that's, he
1: first went to jail, exactly.
0: So sad, yeah.
1: And then, I mean, also, of course, the the victims and um, the survivors and the surviving family members, um, thoughts and prayers to all of those people because um, it's unfortunate to, everyone was failed in right. this one. There's right. no winners in this, yeah. in this case, so. Yeah. Now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. <laughs> wow, wow, that was fast. That was a here we go. Interesting transition. <laughs> well, that's me. That's what we do here at Fruit Lips HQ. <laughs> Join our Patreon. <laughs> um, so. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
0: (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. All right. Well, what... Tip? Do you have for us today, Beth? Well, this is—I thought this was an interesting one. So you know, they mm. talk about safe rooms and stuff. Who has the money? Oh to yeah, buy only, a safe only rich room. people have those. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you can do this. Choose one room or even a closet in your okay. home and install interior locks to create a strong room, a safe haven to be used in case of a home invasion. In a worst-case scenario that prevents you from exiting the home, you can retreat to this safe room, lock the door, and call the authorities. Buying time in a dangerous scenario is key. You'd be surprised what a difference even 30 to 60 seconds can make. So you can make your own safe room in your home. (gasps) Oh,
1: my gosh! Hey, we don't even need that PJ. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, wow. That's a really great tip. Thank yeah, you, Beth. You're welcome. Well, goodness gracious. Now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by or about any marginalized or minoritized folks or any true crime goodies. Um, so I just wanted to shout out The Most Hated Man in America. Yeah. Um, it is on Netflix yep. and uh oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> so also it is <laughs> Oh my god! So if you have already watched it or are gonna watch it because of my sh- our shout out recommendation, we ask that you join us on Patreon after you watch it to hang out with us to discuss.
0: So yeah, we're gonna be on Patreon.
1: Yep, that's right. Um, and then something really delightful I listened to this week was Drink Champs, which is it's a one of the it's a a black podcast on the Black Effect Network. Drink with, Champs, um, okay? Yeah, two retired rappers and they drink and smoke weed and have <laughs> famous notable black. <laughs> (laughs) people on like they've had mike tyson they had kanye that interview was wild um but recently they had miss patty labelle on my own and it was just so delightful um and so she's a legend they are legends in podcasting anyway so check out drink champs nice
0: what do you got? I wanted to shout out Criminal Conduct podcast. Okay. Criminal Conduct is an investigative true crime podcast series hosted by John Taylor and Javier Leva from Pretend oh. Podcast which you oh, shouted yeah. out. A few weeks ago. Yeah. So I started listening to Pretend. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they they had an ad for Criminal Conduct. So I listened to Criminal Conduct and I like that one too. (laughs) Oh
1: my God. Oh, I'm
0: excited. Mm -hmm. Subscribe. The first season is about the death of Michelle O'Connell, who was shot to death on September 2nd, 2010, after arguing with her boyfriend, who was a sheriff's deputy. And it was investigated as a suicide. But was it?
1: No. No, yeah. of course not.
0: <laughs> wow. So there okay. You go. Yeah.
1: Okay, so that is the most hated man in America on Netflix. Also join us on pe- Patreon to talk about that. Drink Champs, anywhere you get your podcast, specifically the latest episode with Patty LaBelle. And um, criminal conduct podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Boy, oh boy, this has been fantastic, my friend. Yeah. Um, but that's it for today. In the meantime, where can
0: the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website on my own.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, everything Beth said was true. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So, until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.